We had uh, started chapter 11, and I explained to you there were two overall themes through the book of Revelation, depending on uh, how you view the book of Revelation. One, if it's a literal temple, literal witnesses, a literal death that they are going to experience, or that some view it as a representative of the church. And um, in those notes that you had from two weeks ago, we're just going to look at them for a second because you've got updated notes for tonight. Just the fact that these are the two views, right? That the two literal witnesses could be some of these individuals, and we'll talk about that in the middle. But the other one, which the first view is the one that I hold to, the second one is that this represents the church. Now that means that you have to believe that the church was not raptured out at the beginning of the tribulation, but you can look through here and see what their belief is on the things that we're going to talk about tonight. And so as we start verse 3, um, verses 3 through 6 tonight, um, we're going to just read that and then we'll look at it. Starts here in verse, we'll read verses 1 through, one through 6 since uh, this is all the same section. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise up and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one hundred or one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloths. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So if you would pray with me, and we'll get started. Father, tonight we thank you for your word, or we thank you for the treasure that it is that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit that allows us to understand learn uh, to be challenged and Lord the spiritual fruit that you accomplish tonight I thank you for each and every family that is here tonight and for those that would have liked to be but could not be and so tonight Lord I pray that you would guide our discussion that you guide the teaching and Lord that everything that is said and done is done for your glory and your glory alone and Lord I just ask it all in Jesus name Amen so the two notes that you have tonight are, are very uh, specific. I tried my very best just to walk us through this uh, chapter together. Um, but in verse 3, we're talking about the two witnesses. And I want you to notice there it says, And I will give power to my two witnesses. And so we're seeing here that this is God-given authority. It's God-given power. And so the I and the my is either Jesus or God the Father. But what we are seeing here is these two individuals are given a mission from God and the power of God to accomplish this mission. 
If you read in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, uh, verses 5 and through 6, uh, listen to what Jehoshaphat said. Then Jehoshaphat st stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven and do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nation? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. And so if tonight we were to say, do we believe that God is powerful? We would say yes. We would say that God is all powerful. We would say, does God have a purpose when he is using that power? Well, absolutely. But specifically, he is talking about these two witnesses. And so when we look through the entirety of the word of God, you will see numerous places where God has called out an individual for a specific task. Think about Moses, right? The hero of Moses' story is not Moses, is it? It's God who found him at the backside of the desert. If you think about Noah building the ark and the preacher of righteousness, the hero is not Noah, right? It is that God called him and equipped him for the task ahead of him. You can go through the entirety of the Old Testament tracking through the prophets. You can look at Elijah and look at Elijah's faults and asking God to kill him. But yet God used him in such a mighty way, not because of Elijah's power, but because of God's power. You can look at Elisha who followed after Elijah. You can look at David. You can look at all these men who God used through the Old Testament and see that it wasn't their power. It wasn't their strength that God had them a specific purpose and task to accomplish. We see that in the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel. We see it in the life of Jeremiah. We see it in the life of the 12 minor prophets. We see it in the New Testament with God calling the apostles, not in their own strength and their own wisdom, right? And, and he told them, right, that they should wait, right, for the Spirit to come and that he would what? Give them the power that they needed. We know that Jesus said at other times to don't worry about what you uh, should say. Don't worry about what you should take with you. That, that, that the Lord would be with you. And so this pattern of God calling and working and moving in the lives of his people is common throughout the word of God. When God has a specific task, when God has a specific mission, when God has a specific need, he can raise uh, someone to fill that need. Now you say, well, Jake, this, I, I don't feel like I'm qualified to be these two people. Well, you're not, because these two people are qualified to be these people. You see, well, I'm not qualified to, uh, to be the next Lottie Moon, or I don't feel qualified to be the next Billy Graham, or, and you're not. They were called to be who they were. But this not diminish what God has called you to do. Adrian Rogers said when preaching through this sermon that we should expect that nothing can harm us until God's mission and task for us is complete. He said he doesn't call a servant not to accomplish the work that he started in them. And I think that's very important to remind ourselves of when we think about what God would have of us. You say, well, Jake, I, I'm not doing uh, big things for the Lord. I'm not, I'm, I'm not preaching great sermons. I'm not teaching great Sunday school classes. Well, 
just went by and visited a family in our church. Uh, most of you know Louie and Mary Elliston. Um, it will probably in any point that Mary is going to leave this world and go to be with the Lord. Um, but yet, a few months ago, maybe up to a year ago, if you remember, uh, their daughter and her husband lived in West Virginia. But all of a sudden, the company that she was working for offered early retirement to buy her out so that she could do what she wanted. At the same time, her mom's health begins to fade. Someone needs to be here to take care of her mother. Took the buyout, moved to McLeansboro, and has what? Been able to be there for her mother and father nonstop. Now, I'm not saying this just to brag on her. I'm just saying that I don't believe that was an accident. I believe that God wanted her to be there to take care of her parents because the Bible tells us to not care for our family in their time of need is to be worse than a what? An infidel. And so I believe that God had a call on her life and her husband and her sister and his, her husband for this season to accomplish the task that God had them. You say, Jake, is that as significant as preaching great sermons? Absolutely. Being faithful is all that we're asked to do. That's it. Whatever God has called you to do, it is to be faithful. You say, well, Jake, what, what about a, what about if I'm a stay-at-home mom? Well, I can promise you that if I was not able to leave my home with confidence of knowing that things were somewhat together, all right? Because when you have six kids, nothing's ever together, all right? But it is good enough. I would not leave to do the things that I do. I would not be able to go the places that I am able to go. I would not be able to do ministry if I was not confident that the people that matter the most to me were being taken care of. What's more important, what I'm doing or what she's doing? Neither. It's being faithful to what God has called us to do. And so while we look at these two witnesses tonight, I really want us to remember God's calling on our life. We have to believe that God has created us fearfully and wonderfully, right? He has not created us as an accident, but he has also gave each and every one of us specific spiritual gifts, at least one, to be used, to be found faithful with. And so these two witnesses are being called, they're his, they're being empowered by him, and we should believe the same for us. That if God has called you to be a missionary, he will give you the power needed. If God has called you to be a witness in the factory that you work in, he will give you the power that you need. If he's called you to be a godly grandma because your kids haven't turned out the way that you think they should have or the situation isn't like you would like for it to be, God will give you the power that you need. Questions? Thoughts? Matthew 20 is the story where James and John's mom asked Jesus if her two sons can be on the left and the right of him. And he kind of gives that answer about, you know, well, first can you drink the cup and yeah. the baptism? I'm going to, yeah, you know, that they didn't know what they were asking. And it almost gives the impression that there was collusion with James and John and their mom. Yeah. They weren't surprised at the question. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, it leaves it open ended, and Jesus even says it's not up to him, even it's up to the Father. Mm -hmm. 
Right, and if you would like to find that passage for your own reading, you can find that Matthew 20, starting there in verse uh, 20, right? you got to love a mother that goes to bat for her kids, but sometimes a mother's love and desires are not what God's are, right? I want all my kids to marry someone who's going to live in Hamilton County, be within about a 20-minute drive of me, and uh, so that I can see my grandkids and at some point enjoy the fruit of raising these kids, right? But that might not be the case. God might have other plans for them. This word for witness here that you see in the Bible, in this passage of scripture, is the word martyr that comes originally from the ancient Greek legal term for witness and for someone who gives testimony or evidence in a court of law. That's why I think there is a struggle here with trying to take this as not being two witnesses when the word that is used is always a person, a person that is giving testimony. We know here that the two is significant. The two witnesses are significant. If you've ever read the Old Testament, when judgment is proclaimed, judgment being proclaimed in the Old Testament was always dependent on two witnesses when death was involved, and why would that be the case? Well, one can lie, but it was assumed that two would be held accountable. Now, we know in Jesus' trial, right, they found people who would lie. But listen to what it says, and if somebody would read Deuteronomy 17, verses 1 through 7, I would greatly appreciate that. Not sacrifice to the Lord your God, a bull or a sheep, which has any blemish or defect. For that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you with any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God, and transgressing, transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it is told to you, and you hear of it, then you shall make inquiry diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, you shall bring out of your gates the man or woman who has committed the wicked thing, and shall stone to death the man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So shall put away the evil from among you. So we see this prescription laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. Now I think it's interesting that if you look here, in verse 1, it is what? He's talking about an unrighteous sacrifice, right? A sacrifice with blemish. For it is a what? An abomination to the Lord. All right? He's talking about those who have been wicked, who have served and worshipped other gods. Now, what is it that we believe happens, if you believe like I do, of a seven-year tribulation happens at the midpoint of the tribulation period that would call for the judgment of God to be put on display for the world. Daniel called it the... That's it. Right? Worshiping 
a sacrifice that was not worthy by people who were worshiping who were not worthy. And what he says there is the punishment will be death. When we jump back to Revelation, if the abomination of desolation has happened, the second half of the tribulation has begun, these two witnesses show up to proclaim what? Judgment. Judgment. You have, you, you have brought the judgment of God upon you. And the consequences is going to be death. Now, I think it's even literal, and we're going to look at that in just a minute, by what happens when someone comes against them. But I think we're seeing this picture of it, right? Because who is the first that is required to put them to death? The witnesses, right? The witnesses don't just get to make the accusation and walk away. No, if you witnessed it, you're willing to testify, you're picking up the first stone. But that's why you couldn't just make these accusations and run to the back of the line. But yet we see this kind of pattern of two. Why two were required? Why do we see two in the book of Revelation? So that they are without excuse. This is not one person's opinion. This is God's men who he has called, who he has given authority to, who he has sent, and he is sending them with the message of judgment. This judgment is going to bring death and destruction like the world has never seen. Even though the first three and a half years have been terrible, it is nothing compared to like what is going to happen when the bold judgments begin to unfold. And so look what it says there. It says, we'll just read through it, and I'll re keep reading it so that we can kind of remember what And I will give power, that word for power can mean power or authority, to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy. That word for prophesy doesn't mean predict the future. It means proclamation. Proclamation of the truth. What is that truth? Judgment. They're not talking about what's going to be happening in the future. They're talking about sin, judgment, the wrath of God. It's coming. Preaching the word of God. It then goes on here and says the 1,260 days. And uh, we've seen this um, given in the Old Testament. If you read Daniel, it's on the back, sorry. <coughs> Daniel chapter 12. Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river. And when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. If you read here in Revelation 12, verse 14, but the woman who was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, from the presence of the serpent. And if you believe like I do, that three and a half year period that's mentioned here in Revelation 12 is after the abomination of desolation. And we'll look at this coming forward, okay? That the Jewish remnant leaves Jerusalem. Many of them do flee to the wilderness. And God protects them. And we're going to look at that. But yet this date is still 
repeated, right? It's repeated over and over again um, for the significance of it, like I said. But yet, if, if you were to hold to a view that it's the church, and I just want to kind of flip back to this, and the notes that you had from last week, right? The two witnesses is the church proclaiming the truth. The prophecy is the church proclaiming God's word. The sackcloth represents humility. 1260 days is to minister during suffering. And so it's the idea of the suffering is going to be the same. It's just going to include to a, a different group of people. Or I believe it is addressed to the Jewish people for this three and a half years that God is going to begin pouring out his judgment on the Gentile world for what they have done and what they have been doing. And so, like I said, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, this clothed in sackcloth might be the second most important thing in this whole chapter. All right? Because sackcloth is a sign of mourning. It is a sign of humility. It is a sign of brokenness. These two individuals are not rejoicing over the judgment that is to come. What does Ezekiel say? That God does not take pleasure in the death of who? The wicked. But yet, what I can find myself saying sometimes is, Lord, if you would just destroy the wicked, you would make things a lot better here. And sometimes I can even be guilty of rejoicing when I think people have got what I thought they had coming to them. Now, I know you would never think that way, all right? I, I know that, but I'm just telling you what I think. But the, the manner of who they are matters. The humility, the mourning, the brokenness that they are showing, not to the Jewish people, but to a wicked world. Yes, the Jews are going to suffer. We know that. Because the Antichrist is going to persecute them and chase after them. But I think it should be the heart of you and I. When we come to Bible study, why do I come to hear the word of God? When I serve God, why do I serve God? Um, Tuesday, before I got uh, sick, um, Tuesday morning, um, uh, Craig, you were there. We were somewhere. Uh, where were we Tuesday morning? Cutting Miss Signale's tree down. Yes. Um, she had a tree fall. It was cutting down. And, uh, and, uh, and it, it, those kind of, of ministries, so many times those kind of ministries get overlooked because, you know, the world doesn't celebrate it. Um, the church doesn't glorify it. But yet it should be done in a heart of humility. This is a woman whose husband has passed away, who's been faithfully committed to this church for decades, right? Uh, who's physically is struggling, whose health is, is starting to fail. And, and is it something where we got to go to every door and knock, uh, knock on the door and share the gospel? No, but we were able to minister to her. And, uh, but even as good as that ministry was, it has to be done with what? 
the right heart. What I can tell you is after um, pastoring now these 12 years, uh, some people will only serve when everyone sees it. That's just the truth. And some people don't want to serve unless no one sees it, all right? But I asked you that today. Why are you doing what you are doing for God? Is it to honor Him? Is it to, to glorify Him? Is it to, to serve Him? Is it to, to bring honor to Him? Or is it about personal gain? I've said this for years, and I will always say it, that I, I started pastoring because God wanted me to, and the day that He tells me that I don't have to, that I won't. All right? uh, that's just the way it is. I don't think that's how it works, but... But it's his. I'm his to use as he sees fit, whether it's a big church, a little church, Illinois, Africa. It's his. It's his fault. Where he found me from, I have nothing to argue with him about, right? He, he saved me, changed me, and was with me even when I ran from him. And so I want to show you two episodes in the Old Testament of when someone put on sackcloth. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, if you're familiar with 2 Samuel chapter 3, 33, excuse me, David is going to have peace, right? The opposing general from the rebellion, the most influential man in all of Israel, has decided it's time to switch teams. And you remember this probably as we preach through uh, 2 Samuel. But if you remember something had happened, a young man would not stop pursuing him. Does anybody remember his name? There was Joab, Abishai, and what was his brother's name? Well, it doesn't matter. Okay. Huh? Well, no. No. Abner is the, the, the influential man. Yeah, I can't pronounce it half the time. But he was, what the Bible say, fleet of foot, right? No one could catch him. And he would not turn from pursuing Abner. Abner told him, turn, turn, turn so that you don't die. And if you remember, he ended up running up on the back of his sword. Well, that young man had two brothers by the name of Joab, who was Daniel's commanding officer, and Abishai, his brother. All right. They get him into the city. David and him make peace. And as he's leaving, what happens? They pull him into a side alley after he's already left David and they murder him in the streets. Now, look what it says in verse 30. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother. There it is, right? No one read ahead except for Marcia. <laughs> At Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourself with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. This was a time of mourning for death. All right? Death. What is going to happen in the second half of the tribulation? Death. 
death, I mean, the world's already expended. You're going to experience great death, but even more. But look about Jonah. You're familiar with the story of Jonah. Jonah went down, swallowed by a fish. I believe it was a whale. I believe it was a specific created fish. God had created a giant fish. Uh, vomits him back up. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches the shortest sermon in church history or the nation of Israel's history. And listen to the response over the brokenness over sin. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And so it's a brokenness over sin that God might spare judgment. I find it interesting that the physical death brings sackcloth but also the prospect of God sparing physical life brings sackcloth. It's not my job. It's not my job to figure out how God does it. It's my job just to be humble as he's doing it. Don't miss that. Not my job to figure out how he does it. It's my job to be humble as he does it. There are a lot of things I wish I could change about how church works and how people are. And, but all I can do is what? Be humble, be in prayer, and wait while God works. And so I believe who they are matters, what they are doing matters, the length that they're doing it matters, and with the attitude that they are doing it matters. Questions about the two witnesses. Just like John the Baptist was dressed funny and ate funny stuff and drew their attention, that these two witnesses are are going to as well. I mean, could it be something different? Possibly, but I, I don't know what it would be. Well, it seems like it's a universal sign that the Ninevites would realize it as well as the Israelites. Mm -hmm. Yes, very much. touch just for a moment because this is the one everybody usually wants to know. Who are the two witnesses? I'm just going to give you the different possibilities you can make up your own mind. Some people believe the two witnesses are Zechariah and Joshua because immediately after describing the two witnesses we're told about the olive trees and we're going to jump back to Zechariah chapter 3. Some people believe it's Moses and Elijah one, because fire is synonymous with Elijah's miracle, and the plagues are synonymous with Moses. Moses, if you remember, um, in Deuteronomy 18, um, some of the Jews believed he was going to come back again. Okay? We know that in the book of Jude, it says that uh, the archangel was sent to fight for the body of Moses against Satan. Some people believe it is Enoch and Elijah. Because those two men did not die. And that happened in Genesis 5, 2 Kings 2. And if you've ever read Hebrews 9, it says it is appointed unto man to what? Wants to die. 
So, for me, that's the logical one. But as one commentator says, all the people in the rapture, they're not technically dying. So does the Lord mean that for physical death for everyone who's going to physically die? That's how they get around that. Uh, you can read some of that in Hebrews 4.17. Some people believe it's just two Jewish prophets who have the spirit of Elijah and Moses or Elijah and Enoch. That, in my opinion, is probably the one that you don't have to, to try to twist scripture around the most. It's two Jewish witnesses, just like John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. I think that's probably best. If I had to pick a second option, I would go with Enoch and Elijah. All right? But it doesn't matter. If God wanted us to know who the two witnesses were, he would have what? He would have named them. All right? But questions? The last one you have is Joshua and Zerubbabel. Is that what you have been through? Or is that supposed to be Zechariah? Uh, Zerubbabel, yes. Yes, Zechariah is what we're going to look at. Thank you. Yes, Joshua and Zerubbabel from the return of the children of Israel rebuilding the temple. Thank you. So what really matters is the olive trees and the lampstands. And so if you would, turn over to Zechariah chapter 3. And we're going to look at this reference that sounds very similar to what is mentioned here. In verse 4 it says in Revelation, There are two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now how do we interpret scripture? We try to... Find out what it means, and then find out where else God uses it, and what did it mean then, and how it can be applied together. And so, if you're familiar, in chapter 3, we're going to read the vision here in verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And that angel of the Lord, if you read it in the original language, is, 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 is not just a angel, it is probably the angel of the Lord, right? It's probably Christ himself. And Satan, standing at his right hand to oppose him, which fits with the New Testament writing that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head, so they put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. In this vision, Joshua represents, as the high priest, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was sinful. They were wicked. It had been proven. And what is happening here is Satan is trying to convince the Lord 
that the Jewish people should not be the people of covenant anymore because of their sin. Even after they got back into the land, they quickly turned back to their wicked ways, correct? And so what's really happening is if Joshua is approved, then Israel is approved. If Joshua is rejected, Israel is rejected. And what the angel of the Lord says is, is look there in verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. He is saying that it was my choice to make them my chosen people. I am the one who initiated this relationship with them. They're not my covenant people because of their obedience. They are my covenant people because I gave them my covenant. And so he tells them here that the filth of their garments. Now, some of us know that this was fulfilled in the fact that they rebuilt the temple. and that, that, But ultimately, their sins were not removed from them, right? I, I believe Richard McCormick might have said this Sunday night, that they, they were what? They were covered, right? They were covered. But yet we know that once Christ dies, once Christ is our sacrifice, he will what? You were here Sunday night, I think you heard it. Remove our transgressions from them. But not just remove our transgressions from us, but then will what? Give us his righteousness. And so what we're seeing here is, is the nation of Israel. Are they still God's chosen people, even though they don't deserve it? And what he says is, yes. And he begins to explain it here in verse 6. This all matters, all right? Just, just bear with me. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Well, we know that this is impossible, right? We know that Joshua was unable. The people were unable. They broke the covenant again, right? The city of Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. We know all of this, right? They were not able. But listen to verse 8. Phew, out of breath. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Now, if you've read anything in the Old Testament, this is a reference to the Messiah who is going to come. Christ, the only real high priest who was perfect. But don't miss verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord. And I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. 
Who is the stone who was rejected by the builders? Christ, right? He is talking about a future event, a future fulfillment, a future promise. And you say, well, how do we know that? Because look what it goes on to say. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That has never been done. There is still sin in Israel. There is still sin in McLean's world. There is still sin in my heart. And so it's very important to see this, right? The seven eyes, if you're familiar in the Old Testament, it can talk about omniscience, right? All knowing. And who is that? It's not me. It's not you. It's the Lord. Amen. Now we're getting on it. But don't miss verse 10. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, if you hold to a millennial kingdom that is going to happen in Revelation chapter 20, this is probably referring to that. In one day, iniquity is gone. What day will that be? When the Lord returns and destroys his enemies. Right? He throws the two into the lake of the fire. In Revelation 19, when the birds feast upon the flesh. In that millennial kingdom, that 1,000 year reign, where Christ is our high priest and he is our king, there will be peace. Right? There will be peace. Now, this is important for this reason. Because what we see here in Revelation chapter 11, talking about these are two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of earth. It doesn't say the God of heaven, does it? It, it doesn't say the God of the universe. It says earth, which is not that uncommon. But yet I think it is interesting that it's here, right? The judgment that's going on on the earth, the, the, the things that are happening on in the earth. And then when we reference back to verse 4, we know that, that um, Zechariah has multiple visions here. It's not just one. He, he's getting, I think there's six, six total visions, right? So he's getting these a little at a time because this, this, the high priest that promises to Israel the promises of a, a perfect high priest leads us into verse 4. It leads us into chapter 4, excuse me. Because he asks him in the beginning of chapter 4, well, what do you see? What do you see? After you've received this vision and you've received this promise and you've received this hope, what? And here it is in verse 2. And he said, what do you see? So I said, I am looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one by the right of the bowl and the other as it is left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? Well, I've prayed that way a few times. Lord, if you'll show me, how do you not know, right? So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. 
not by mind, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, the imagery here, all right, is one of a bowl. This bowl would be full of an oil, and that oil would be olive oil. The olive oil would come from the olive tree. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Right? We see here that there are pipes coming from the bowl to the seven lampstands. That means there would be a continuous flow of oil needed to keep the light burning. Not only that, the bowl that filled the pipes would never run dry. What is the significance of the true trees and the one lampstand? One, most Bible scholars believe overabundance, right? I don't know how much olive oil a tree produced. I'm not into, would that be horticulture? Is that, but I don't know what the study of trees is. That's not me. All right. They, I'm like you, cut them down, get them out of the way. All right. But it's talking here to Zerubbabel that it is not by your might that you're going to accomplish this. It's by the Lord's power and the Lord's spirit is what's going to be accomplishing this great task. So when you flip over to Revelation, and it says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of earth. He is saying the authority and power that they need is coming from the spirit of God. It's not dependent upon them. They will not need their own strength, their own power. God is supplying this miracle. God is supplying this work. God is providing for this because, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll talk for two minutes and I'll be done, all right? And you can ask all the questions you want. I won't have any here to answer them, but verses one, three and four matter because we're going to learn in verse five. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of our prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So don't miss this, all right? A rapid finish. But the task that they're given is by God. The task they are given is specific. And the task that they are given is impossible on their own. It cannot be explained by the power of a man. It can't be expounded by the power uh, of strength. You say, well, Jake, I thought the Holy Spirit would be removed during the tribulation period. The restraining of the Holy Spirit will be gone during the tribulation period. But there are people saved during the tribulation. And who is the one that does the drawing for people to be saved? The Holy Spirit. His restraining work is gone. The restraining over evil that the Bible talks about is gone. Right? There is no holding back on the wickedness of lost people. But the Holy Spirit is still going to be saving, still going to be convicting those who are going to be saved. But what these two men are going to have to do, they're going to be trying to murder them. Because why? They're going to be preaching for the whole world to see 
right? We know that television, the internet. And they're going to be preaching about the sin and judgment and wickedness of the world. And then they're going to call out fire from heaven. Or, or they're going to see this plague and people are going to hate them. Now, the issue is some Bible scholars question, is this going to be worldwide or is it going to be specific to when they are calling down no rain? So will it be no rain on the whole earth or will it be no rain in all of Israel? I think either one of those views is fine, doesn't you know? But what you are seeing is a worldwide hatred for these two people, but yet they cannot be killed. Now, that takes on a whole lot of meaning because if you've ever seen the Superman comic book, which turned into the Superman TV shows, which turned into the Superman movies, right? It can't be killed except by kryptonite, right? I, I don't believe our fascination with this is something that is crazy. We see it right here. Now, for others who view this as the church, right, that the church is preaching the gospel, it can't be stopped, that the fire is the Holy Spirit using the word of God, um, that is another view. But if you hold to the two people view that these men are going to be preaching, there's nothing that can be done to them, they're just like the 144,000 evangelists, that they are protected. But what it says here is that when someone comes to harm them, they will be devoured. And what that looks like, I don't know. It says what it says. I don't understand it. But I believe it. And so, a couple things, real quick, all right? When you read through this, and you look at all that's going on here in this uh, notes that I gave you, right? Before the God of the earth, don't miss that. Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the Lord and those who dwell therein. And so then you begin to see these miracles that can happen, these miracles that can be done. I think that there is no doubt that God can do these miracles, right? Because we've seen them throughout the Old Testament, right? We've seen that the power to shut up heaven so there was no rain. Who performed that miracle? Things turned to the knee. Elijah, right? If you look there and you go on, it says the power to turn the water to blood. Moses, to strike the earth with all the plagues. Moses, as often as they desire. That as often as they desire is really a tricky little phrase right there. Because it has the, the undertone of whenever they feel necessary. Well, I don't know if people are trying to kill me. I'm glad I'm not one of those two witnesses, right? Because I would desire it all the time, right? But what it's saying is these two individuals are empowered by the Spirit of God. They are equipped by the will of God and that he is going to provide for them as they accomplish this task that he has for them until, if you've read ahead, that task is so, I think Zechariah 3 and 4, I don't have time to look at all of it. I encourage you to read it. Um, and, and the prophecy is really about it's the Lord. It's the Lord's power. It's the Lord's provision. It's the Lord, the one that sustains. And much of that can be applied to our own lives. So, that's all I've got.
thoughts. Like I said, I did put that other point of view in there for you to look and study uh, at your own time and leisure. So in Zechariah, you're saying that the, the, tr the two trees and the seven bowls are the Spirit of God, correct? It can be, yes, the power of God. So would that also go back to Revelation 1, verse 4, it's talking about the seven spirits. It can. That are before the throne. It okay, can. There's only one Holy Spirit, but mm -hmm. we had talked about that earlier. Yeah. The Holy Spirit, what, you know, the seven's a complete number. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, kind of on the other side of it, um, you've got, the, you know, where, where your view of representation of the church, when, when Jesus was admonishing Peter for uh, properly identifying him as the Son of God, in Matthew 16, Jesus proclaims that, you know, that he you know, built his, his church mm -hmm. and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Possible. Yeah, and if you look at it, if you look at Ephesians 5, 8, Ephesians 5 verses 8, 9, it is the church that is the Lord's working through now. Undoubtedly, right? They're, Israel is just Israel. God has, I believe, his promises for them. Uh, but they have to be saved one way. That is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, repenting of their sins, turning from their wickedness, right? Um, but yet I believe that when the fullness of the time of the Gentiles has come, that we see in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24, I believe the church is raptured out. Then the Lord begins to work through that promised people of Israel. I think you see it, if anybody has their Bible, in Micah chapter 5, verse 4. Um, Micah chapter 5, verse 4. Excuse me. It says in Micah 5, verse 4, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for he shall be great until the end of the earth. And this one shall be peace. Talking about the coming Messiah being in charge. Never forget how the Lord is working and moving. That it's all about him. It's all about the Messiah. It's all about him who came to take away the sins of the world, which I think you heard preached Sunday night. And so never forget that as we study God's word, as we dive into the meanings of it, that he is the one that feeds his flock. He is the strength of the Lord. He is the one who is majesty and should be lifted up. And they shall abide. And that is written, I think, specifically there in Micah to the children of Israel. But because we have been grafted in, we are able to worship and praise him. Other thoughts on Revelation 21? I do turn that off real quick. Do a few prayer requests before we close.